Welcome back to Stacios. I'm Ian Hewitt. I'm hosting the podcast today because I'm interviewing Carmen. Carmen, as I'm sure you all know, is a romance novelist, and she has written After She Falls, which is already in stores. And her second book is coming out shortly, Pretty Little Pieces, which is another romance novel. You can pre-order it now. It's available everywhere. Um, it will ship to you on December 4th, and you can order it for $10, which includes free shipping from Baker Bookhouse, which is the largest independent bookstore in the oh, country. Sorry, Christian bookstore. <laughs> That's an important. <laughs> the largest independent Christian bookstore in the country. We'll we'll just leave that in. It'll make it more memorable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so since, since Carmen now has finished two novels, I thought that this would be a good opportunity to interview her about uh, the genre of romance generally. Um, you know, and if you're like me, I've never read a romance book in my life. I, you know, I've read novels that obviously had romantic subplots within the novels, but I've never read anything that could be classified as romance. Um, so, uh, you know, you may be, you may have some of the same kinds of general questions about the genre that, that I have. Um, so this could be a fruitful interview for you, even if you don't actually have any interest in reading a romance novel, but perhaps have some sociological uh, curiosity about it. But I also really, I wanted to interview Carmen to just um, learn more about her writing process, what she's learned from writing novels, um, you know, what, the, what that has taught her about life generally, um, and, and the, these sorts of things. Uh, what got her into the genre of romance. So that's what we're going to talk about in this interview. Carmen, how are you doing? Awesome. Good, good. So excited to to chat about book stuff. We don't get to do that very often, so. Yeah, no, no, not very often. Well, good. Uh, well, you know, sometimes it helps to have an interviewer that knows absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes. Well, you've been a great supporter. I, I always do appreciate those who are not necessarily readers of romance or Christian romance, but they like me and they want me to do well. And so that, you know, hey, buying a book is buying a book. So I appreciate it. Well, I've definitely from our friendship learned a lot about the the business process of writing and publishing that I would not have known otherwise. So that's been very fruitful. I haven't learned as much about romance as such. So I hope to correct that in this interview. Yeah. So so let's talk about what, what romance is. Uh, you're a romance writer uh, like me and our male listeners and, and maybe some of our female listeners. Um, you know, there are people out there that won't know anything about the genre of romance, but might have some kind of interest in, in learning certain basic things about it from the outside. So you have a graduate degree in English, but I assume you are not focusing on romance in your graduate program. How did you get into reading the genre of romance and what was it that made you think you might like to be a romance writer? Well, you are correct that when I was getting my master's at K-State, K um, I never really attempted to write romance or Christian anything uh, just because, I mean, it was pretty obvious that it would not have been well received. Um, how I really got introduced to the genre was through Francine Rivers. And she's probably maybe the the best known, you know, modern Christian novelist of the day. I, I mean maybe there I might I might be forgetting somebody else. But as far as like the romance genre goes, Francine Rivers um, you know, has like a prolific stream of novels that were all pretty popular. Um, the main one being Redeeming Love. 
which I read when I was pretty young, probably younger than I should have been. Um, but I was a really uh, voracious reader by the time I was in middle school. Um, I think my mom was like, well, it's Christian, so it'll be fine. <laughs> and it was, I mean, I don't know. My my reaction to it um, was, uh, I probably should have been a little bit older, but I found it to be a very moving, powerful story. And I went on to read a lot pretty much all of Francine Rivers' books from there. And the reason why I think I liked them so much is because it was one of the very few instances in my life where I saw Christianity intersect with the other things that I was interested in. Um, You know, all of Francine Rivers' stories are about uh, romance, obviously, and beauty and love and, you know, all the things that are kind of on your mind when you're a a teenage girl. You're, you know, and so it was... It was the first time I got a glimpse into art that touched on everything that mattered to me because there was plenty of stuff geared towards me about romance, but it had nothing to do with Christianity. And even at that age, even when I was very nominal Christian, that still just didn't like speak to me very much. You know, it's kind of like, well, this is this is entertaining, but it doesn't feel very real because there's this whole realm to reality that's not even being addressed. Um, Whereas Francine Rivers does a really good job of bringing together the human experience and the spiritual experience. So that's where I learned that I loved the genre. It wasn't until later when I was finally done at Kansas State and, you know, I kind of sat down and was like, well, I think I'd like to write a book uh, that I realized that there's really nothing else. If I was going to spend all the time it takes to write a book I was going to write what was fun to me. And for me, if I'm going to, you know, entertainment fiction, it's going to have to have a pretty strong romantic element for me to want to spend the time to read it. Probably in the same way that, you know, for some people, like science fiction is their jam or whatever. For me, it has always been like, I want there to be a really good love story. I want that to be a major part of the plot. Um, So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Interesting. Well, that makes me want to ask you, how interested you would be in, in, for example, writing a fictional book which has a major kind of romantic subcomponent but isn't romance. However, that kind of brings us back to this this initial question of what romance is. So right. everyone who, who reads fiction has read books that had romance in them, but we usually wouldn't say that person had read a romance book. Um, you mentioned sci-fi. If a book has sci-fi in it, any sci-fi in it, really. We'll call it a sci-fi book, even if that's not kind of the thrust of the plot. But if it has some romance in it, we don't call it a romance book, interestingly. The romantic component doesn't define the whole book necessarily. So my my sort of educated guess as to what romance is, is this. the My guess is the romantic plot is the primary plot of the book, and the protagonist of the book is the woman in the romance. Is that basically the genre of romance? Uh, is that wrong? And or am I missing anything that's central or or just a traditional necessary part of the genre of romance? No, that's that's essentially it. There are really no romance novels where like the guy <laughs> is the primary uh, voice. Although, I mean, most romance novels, I would say most alternate between the female's point of view and the male's point of view. But the female point of view is obviously kind of the one that gets more time. The, the man might get a, a significant chunk, but it's definitely written with a more heavily female voice because the readers of romance are so much more, are almost all female. But yeah, what you described is right. Like the best way to describe what makes a romance is that 
the things that happen in the story happen because these two people are drawn to each other. Or if they're not drawn to each other, like something happens that brings them together. And it's like that togetherness, that chemistry, that series of circumstances involving the two of them, that is what drives the plot. Whereas in many other, like what you're describing, you know, there can be a lot of situations where, you know, you have a story like an an action adventure story or a mystery or something. And maybe over the course of the story, the protagonist like likes somebody or something. And that adds an interesting little element to the story. But the things aren't happening because those two people, you know, want to be together but can't or whatever the case may be in the romance. So really, um, that's what defines the romance is you're going to, this story is happening because there are these two people who, the big question we have to answer at the end is, will they end up together or not? It's almost like the world of the story is oriented towards driving these two people together in some way. Is that right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Or I mean, really driving them apart. Like a good romance should be, Yeah. you should want them to be together, but you should be constantly questioning whether they will be or not. You know, like that's the goal. Um, and it's hard to do because I mean, almost every romance, like it's a given, <laughs> like they're going to end up together. But if you're a good writer and you understand what you're doing, then that's why it's fun to read as, you know, you're kind of left in that. It's, it's very similar. Um, you know, the, the romance writer and the, the action adventure story, the only things that's really different is where like the stakes are located. So, you know, Oh, I was just thinking about this. Yeah. So like the, the enemy in the romance is the failure, potential failure of the romance. Basically. Correct. Right. Versus, you know, in a story where it's like external stakes of like life or death, the death that happens could be your like literal death or, you know, you lose a war or something like that. But in the romance, it's located in that, like that relationship dynamic this relationship could die or fail or end. That's the question. So let's talk about some specific examples. Uh, Could you describe to anyone who's maybe listening to us for the first time, I presupposed earlier people knew something about your your previous book, but I'm sure we'll have some new listeners here. Uh, Could you summarize the basic themes of your first book and then tell us a bit about the plot of this second? So After She Falls is a very, very very loose, gentle retelling of the classic Rocky story. So if you like Rocky and you read it, it's not going to have like these glaring similarities, but there will be some moments that you'll be like, oh, I see. That's like a fun little nod to different things. Um, And what I essentially was going for was Rocky, you know, what's fun about Rocky? Well, you have like a classic underdog story. Um, it's lightly very Christian. Like some people don't even notice that, but like Sylvester Stallone was trying to incorporate a little bit of like Christian symbols and themes and you have a love story. And so I just took those things and I kind of rebuilt them. And I think what I ended up with was very much like a story about trusting God, even when it feels like you're going to lose the things you want the most, like trusting God when the stakes are very high um, and you could fail, but you still trust him anyway. So that's sort of what I think you see the main character going through in different ways. Um, Another aspect that was important to me was I really wanted to portray Christians 
um, as having like a fighting spirit. You know, we know what a fighting spirit means like in just general terms, but I think that's actually a really important part of being a Christian. So I wanted to show these characters who were like actual fighters, like, you know, that was like their hobby and their profession and in built into who they were, um, but also deeply interested in uh, questions of faith and like ethics and like, you know, and so that was important to create characters like that, particularly the male ones. I think um, masculine heroes is pretty much standard in the Christian romance genre, but a mixed martial artist, very like aggressive type of guy who also cares about Jesus was a little bit of like <laughs> throwing people for a loop. And I did it on purpose because I think more men should be like that. I think they should be very tapped into their um, protector uh, identity um, right. and also still, you know, be interested in theology. I think those two things shouldn't be like, oh, that's weird that the same person would like those two things. Um and then also um, another part that was like somewhat not controversial, I guess, to some is that I had the main character. She was like a new believer and the love interest was a non-Christian. And over the course of the book, he, you know, began the very beginning stages of converting. And um, it was hard to write because I wanted very much to portray that as like I mean, I know that's a scenario that happens, you know, like that happens actually pretty frequently where people um, end up leading people, if not converting them, at least introducing them to Christianity through the course of friendships or romantic relationships, but also to make it very real, realistic how he would come to that on his own and not just do it out of the sheer, like, you know, I'm interested in this person, so I'm going to just kind of adopt the same worldview that she has um, to really make it like real stakes for both of them. And, you know, it's maybe a little non-traditional and at the end, like, it's very obvious that they will probably end up together, but I don't spell it out for the reader that, you know, it's, it's a done deal. And, you know, if you read it, like, I'm not really giving anything away. Like you'll kind of see when you get to the end. So that's the first one. And then the second, the, the new book, <clears throat> Pretty Little Pieces, it's a totally new world, totally new characters. Um, you know, I think After She Falls is a little more on like the darker side, the grittier side. I mean, it's very uplifting, but it's just that world is more the world of mixed martial arts and professional fighting versus Pretty Little Pieces is about a woman who is a um, up and coming reality star. She's got a one of those home design shows. I don't know if you, you probably never watched those, Ian, but <laughs> women like them. And it's basically you go into ugly houses and you make them look cute. And they're, you know, beloved. And this woman is on her way to the top. She's going to be the next Joanna Gaines. And what ends up happening is her boyfriend, who the man she thought she was going to marry, also very, you know, aesthetically perfect like her, um, breaks up with her right in the middle of kind of their ascent to the top of their careers and fame. And it throws, you know, everything off balance. And she has to go and kind of try to salvage her career um, at one of its highest points with a lot on the line and in the process as she's going to go renovate this house um, 
she meets somebody else. And he certainly was not like part of the plan. And he's very much a, <laughs> oh, this is funny. You'll appreciate this. He's a Christian, but um, <laughs> to the average person. So uh, Publishers Weekly called him a, uh, said he had a strict fundamentalist outlook. <laughs> <laughs> so, that is funny. Basically, he's a, a man who believes like basic Christian things. Um, and she's sort of like a nominal believer. She's grown up with it. She has some idea. And um, so again, just kind of exploring that dynamic of two people in different spiritual maturities, but interested in each other and in circumstances that push them together and pull them apart. And, you know, you have to see ultimately what she ends up choosing. It's sort of like using the term Christian nationalist to refer to anyone that ascribes to like basic Christian ethical and cultural views, right? Like and anyone who believes in the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith is a, is a quote unquote fundamentalist. I know. Well, it was so funny too, because I mean, there's a lot of making out in that book. There's just a lot of things that like a Christian, a real fundamentalist, a strict yes. fundamentalist is not going to like. So to like for them to, you know, go, I mean, they gave me a very nice review, but I read that and I was like, huh. I guess all Christians are strict fundamentalists now. Like that's the that's where we're at. Well, I guess they saw the character as very other and yeah. were were attracted to aspects of of his life, I suppose. So that's that's yeah. the goal. I think um, he's a very fun character because he is, I mean, he's very real. I think and you know, there's also just things to get into. Like those particular characters are like, a lot of criticism of certain things that happen in Christian romance novels come from people like it's almost like they assume the person reading them is like 14 years old. And like maybe that's the case. But, you know, like there are many adult women reading them and like it's about adult people and adults do adult things. So like it's just but also like Christian adults also do those things and have to navigate through it. Well, that raises an interesting question about your first book, because I have read a bunch of reviews of the first book. And so everyone knows the reviews of your first book have been overwhelmingly positive. But we've both discussed some of the negative reviews, which were by and large by women that were were like scrupulously morally policing your books. Right. Um, for Especially for, for things like swearing complaints. That, that was a recurring thing I saw was complaints that there was too much swearing even though literally there isn't any <laughs> there's swearing no in the, swearing at all in the book. um but <laughs> that, yeah that's not explained in the reviews but one thing that i never saw is maybe this is out there but i never saw actually any complaints about the male love interest being a non-christian is it was that not really present in those reviews or do you think you just wrote you explored this topic so carefully that you did it in such a way that even these reviewers were not offended by it. Yeah, there was one gal who wrote one very, very long scathing review about it, but that's the only one I saw that really was a upset that he was not a Christian throughout the whole book and that she was and that the main the gal, Audrey, was so interested in him. Um, I think it's because I think why a lot of people really ended up liking it and appreciating it is because, I mean, I just got very, very real with it where like it's there's a there's a point in the book where it's, you know, these two these two people like each other. They would like to be together, but she has become a Christian and it is actually important to her. And she's had conversations with him and it's very apparent that like 
God is not important to him. In fact, he almost has a little bit of a resentment towards the idea that God should be important at all. And so when, you know, basically (laughs) they get close enough to a point where she has to make a choice, she flat out says that to him. She says, you know, God is important to me and he's not important to you. And, you know, of course, like secular people might find that really cheesy or whatever. But a lot of people that I talked to, readers, said, like, I never read anything like that in a book before. I'd never encountered a story where that was ever talked about. And I really liked it, you know, and like and then it, it goes on and there's like a realistic, I think, passage of time where they're not together, really. They don't spend time together. That's sort of her choice. and. He has other influences in his life that, you know, sort of working in tandem that eventually he gets to a place where I think to the reader, they could say, like, it makes sense why this would be of importance to him now. And so I think I think I handled it. I mean, it was uncompromising in that, you know, if you are a Christian, you should not be like yoking yourself to an unbeliever. But it was also very realistic in that. You might want to, (laughs) like, even though you know you shouldn't, you might want to, like, and the feeling is real, but the words that need to come out of your mouth need to be, you know, like in line with what you believe. So I think it was, a. I think it, I'm I'm pretty proud of it. I think it was hard to do. (laughs) I think I pulled it off, but it was hard. It was hard to do for sure. That's insightful. I can see why it worked. So let's talk about writing process. What did you learn about the writing process during the experience of the first book that you were then able to apply as you were writing the second book? So I learned that you should definitely try, if you can, not to have a baby right when you are launching your first book and trying to write a second book. I learned that that timing is pretty hard. But um, honestly, like, obviously, I'm very happy. I'm glad my little if it, if it came down to my books or my babies, I'm going to pick my babies every day of the week. But um, what I definitely learned writing between the, the two different books is the importance of really nailing down story structure before sitting down to write. And that's also like exacerbated when you have a deadline. Like, you know, with the second one, I had a deadline. The first one, I did it. And so I could, with the first one, I could like explore a little more and just kind of hang out and enjoy the the vision and play around with it. With the second one, I just kind of sometimes felt like there was a gun to my head. And there really wasn't. My publisher was great, but that was like my personal, you know, responsibility and pressure to finish the book. Um, and what I mean by story structure is, you know, Modern writing is all about like experimentation, but you should really get very good at the three act structure and then you can play around with it. But just that, you know, act one, opening scenes, day in the life, a disturbance happens, the door of no return opens. Um, Act two is all like the fun and games, the memorable things that happen, the increasing stakes and increasing stress. And then act three is that, you know, your climactic battle and then the um, resolution. And what I learned is with the first one, I had a pretty clear sense of what all of those things were going to be. And it was relatively easy to write. The second one, I did it. I just kind of knew well, I want this kind of character and I want this kind of character and I want sort of these scenes. And it was very hard to write. Um, So I will never do it that way again. (laughs) I will always make sure I know what 
events and uh, things I'm slotting into those three acts before I write another book. Oh, interesting. So you didn't have kind of a, a prearranged outline for the second one. No, not really. I thought I did. But when I looked back, I was like, yeah, this is mostly just vibes. Like there's a there's a joke where it's like a book can't just be vibes, you know, like and that's what a lot of people start with is like, well, I want it to sort of I want it to be, you know, kind of dark and and have a, a vintage, like, you know, like it's just almost like picking out yeah. an outfit or something. I'm like. <laughs> You can, that's kind of fun and you can spend some time doing that. But the real challenge is plotting it out. And that's the hardest part of writing is plot. So if you actually sit down on the front end and figure out, you could like, you know, event A is going to cause event B and character C is going to enter in. Like if you do all that, it's way easier to actually execute the book. Um, Cause you don't have, you're not left with a, a moment, a critical moment where you're like, well, I don't really know what should happen next. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> when you're writing nonfiction, do you outline? Um, yeah, I do. I usually have, um, I know what points I want to make, you know, like three points. Um, but it's, a, it's pretty different. You know, that three act structure is so, there's just so much you can do that it's just, it is definitely a different process than outlining for nonfiction. You know, I think nonfiction is pretty straightforward. You need to make your argument and then think of the reasons that are going to back up the argument. Yeah. Right. No, it's analogous for sure. Yeah. And different, but different, but analogous. Yeah. So your first point is a good segue into my next question. You have happy, well-adjusted young children. It almost goes without saying that a feminist would say you can't raise young kids and publish successful novels. But more interestingly, I think there are some traditional Christians that implicitly say this as well. So I've seen, for example, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, there are sort of online trad influencer girls who will say, I've seen this a few different places, if you're a woman and ambitious, you should raise kids in your early 20s and then you have your 40s as an empty nester, young empty nester to pursue all of your ambitions. And when people say that, um, you know, people that are broadly aligned with us, implicit in there is this idea that you can't really get anything done with kids, which is sort of the same premise that the feminists are, are actually working with. Are those two models, are they seriously wrong? Or do you just have a rare level of willpower that enables you to navigate this? <laughs> well, I think it could be a little bit of both. I don't know. I mean, I I know people that work much, who work much harder than I do. So I don't want to say that I'm, you know, like super exceptional. But it is true that like throughout my life, I have always been very industrious. I've always liked to have a lot to do. Um, if I'm not doing a lot, I'll go find more things to do. That's just maybe a personality trait, also maybe a coping mechanism. I don't know. Uh, but that is just an element of there my There are worse coping mechanisms. <laughs> right. I channel it into achieving things that I want to do. Um, I also married someone who's also very much like a high achieving person um, who's very ambitious himself. And so I think that, I mean, I'll just say, I think that helps a lot. Like, I think... Um, there are, if I imagine, I try to imagine myself being married to other people. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it would work. Jeff and I are very much like on the same page in terms of we really want to maximize 
our time with our children, but we also feel very um, strongly that we have work that we need to also do at the same time, um, both of us. And he's very supportive of the fact that, you know, I have like a unique gifting in certain areas and I should be using it. Um, that said, you know, everything is a trade-off. Uh, Thomas Sowell said that, and he's right, that I think, I guess to answer your question fully, I think why a lot of women have angst about this, whether they're feminists or trad wives, is because they don't accept that that everything really is a trade-off. Um, and there are trade-offs to being with your kids 24-7. Like you do miss out on important parts of being human, if that's your experience. In the same way that if you just make your, your life like work and drinks and brunch, like you miss out on extremely important parts of your life too. And I would argue, I think obviously like family is fundamentally so much more fulfilling than career, um, you know, goal, meeting career goals. But nonetheless, I still think it's important. So I've released myself from that expectation that I'm going to get all of it at the same time. I know that I miss out on some special moments sometimes because I'm working. Um, I also know that I miss out on some career opportunities sometimes because I'm with my kids. And I mean, I would be lying if I said I've never gotten really frustrated or cried about that or whatever. But at a certain point in just learning how to do both, um, I just recognize like it's OK. God made it this way um, and it's OK to not have it all all at the exact same time. I think it's about maximizing the time that you do have. And so when I'm with my kids, I'm always thinking about, you know, how am I going to make sure that I am you know, teaching them as much as I can and, and modeling to them as much as I can and that sort of thing. And when I'm working, how am I, you know, making the most of the time to do excellent work? And I mean, I find it really, I mean, I'm very happy. I'm glad that I'm a mom with three kiddos. Um, I feel very blessed, but I'm also happy that I have a creative outlet. I think my life would be pretty hard. <laughs> If I didn't have one, to be honest, like it's so fun. They're really cute little people and they make you laugh, but it is good to have a time to use, you know, your intellectual giftings and your creative giftings and to switch between the two. I find that really makes like every day kind of fun and exciting. So I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think they're lying <laughs> a little bit. There you go. Well, yeah, it seems like just as there's one body with many parts when it comes to groupings of individual people within our lives, there's many parts and you can't, you know, just as in a communal context, you can't, you know, the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. I think that's probably also true within the different components of one individual life. Right. You, you can't, you can't literally be just an ear. You can't literally be just an eye. No. There has to be some other section of your of your life simultaneously. And I think it's good for children to see that, honestly. You know, I think yeah. my children, Vivian's the oldest, she's four, and she already has a really, I think, um, like inspiring vision for being a woman. You know, she tells me she's going to have 100,000 babies and she's going to be a <laughs> book writer <laughs> and she's going to she's going to decorate her house and she's, you know, she's got big plans and they're all I can see they're all little pieces of things that I do. Um and she loves the the childcare gal that she talks to. They have a whole, you know, and it's I mean, I've just I also embrace I I I guess I'm okay with 
as much as I want my children to learn from me, um, it's good for them to be around other people too. <laughs> like other people have other strengths that it's not a bad right. thing for them to be exposed to and to, you know, learn to be independent from me. Um, well, it sounds like Vivian wants to be a lot like you, except you don't quite have a hundred thousand kids. Yet. <laughs> yeah. She really wants me to have two more children. She's very Im- like, I'm like, I just had a baby Viv. I literally just gave you a brother. <laughs> she has, she has specific personal goals, even for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, can we just enjoy the one-year-old baby? <laughs> like, she got get that good planning ability from you and Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, so I want to ask you about being a Christian young professional. Um, this is an area where we have a lot of overlapping experience in different fields. You were already outspoken about your controversial beliefs on cultural issues, which is where you know Christians feel that they're walking on a minefield of terror in, in being a young professional. Um, when you, when you published your first book already, you were outspoken on these issues and now you're on number two. Um, so none of, none of this propensity to engage in these controversial cultural fights has stopped you from doing anything. Uh, you know, you've had multiple agents who've wanted to work with you. You had multiple publishers to choose from. You've had a mainstream film studios expressed interest in your books. Um, and that's certainly the trajectory that your career is going in. Uh, and yet, you know, as this has progressed, you, if anything, you've doubled down on being, <laughs> yeah. being a public controversialist. So tell us a bit about how you've navigated that and what general lessons uh, are here for believers who have ambitions in competitive fields outside the church generally, uh, but would like at least the option of being open about their cultural principles in public. Oh, it's such a good question. And there's so much you could say. I mean... I think what I have learned is if you're on the fence, well, I guess I'll preface it by by saying this. How I came to the conclusion to be bold about important topics was I felt a deep personal conviction from God. Um, And I felt it. I mean, it was just unmistakable. I knew what God was telling me to do. I knew that it was a change I had to make. I also, I mean, I had spent a very long time being a just absolute normie people pleaser. You know, people knew I was a Christian, but I was definitely going for that whole like, oh, but she's not like those other, she's not like those Christians. She's a cool Christian. And, and when I became a mom, and I mean, I've told this story lots of times, when I became a mom and I had, it just like struck me that I would be the the most important model to my baby daughter that of of what it meant to be a Christian woman. And I thought to myself, Carmen, would you want Vivian to be acting like this to get like a book deal? Would you want her to like hide who she is and to tread so carefully and to like, you know, constantly be like basically trying to figure out how Christian can I be (laughs) without offending anybody? Like it's just this, it's just a really wrong way of approaching your life as a Christian. And I realized, no, I don't want her to be like that. And so if I don't want her to be like that, why am I like that? And so I think that's important because, you know, Ian and I can tell you to be bold, but you have to come to, you have to realize like the stakes and you have to realize that like Hmm. Christianity is true and Christianity is worth it. Like, you know, like you, you have to feel that and know it. And so I, I had that understanding and that's when I made the decision. And 
it was it was the best thing I ever did. I mean, um, for so many different reasons. Yeah, it did cost me certain things early on. You know, I lost the opportunity to work with a big deal New York literary agency. Um, I'm sure there's opportunities I don't even know about <laughs> that I lost. Um, but I know for a fact that many opportunities that I got were specifically because I had taken stands that were um, hard to take. And <clears throat> because I also, because the people who partnered with me knew what they were getting. They knew that I had a spine and that I wouldn't be folding. And they like, they knew what they were getting. And there's something I think very refreshing about that today um, in the world of making deals and all of that. Um, You've also preemptively turned down specific opportunities if you thought they would put you in a compromising position potentially. Yes. I, I just make it a rule. You know, I was I was recently at a conference and I was talking to some some aspiring writers and you know, I totally understood where they were coming from. They just wanted like a foot in the door and they were kind of willing to, t to take that foot anywhere they could get it, stick that foot in any door. And, but some of them, I was like, just, I mean, I shared what you and I were talking about. I said, for me, as much as I would love to do certain things, it's not worth it to me if the relationship is going to be fraught with this tension and this questioning of if we really have each other's back. Like, I don't want to do a business relationship with anybody that I feel like with just a tiny little bit of peer pressure from some weirdos on the internet would turn on me, you know? Like, that's just, I'm not going to put myself in a position um, to have to navigate that. I don't think that's wise, and I don't think you have to. And that's what I was trying to tell them is, you know, um, I get that it, it feels scary, but you can believe that God has an opportunity for you that actually lines up with like biblical wisdom where you're not yoking yourself with people that, you know, ultimately don't have the same vision as you and will drop you like a hot, hot potato, like the second, you know, anything happens. Um, the other, you know, advice I would, I would give them just like strategically thinking about this is Maybe one of the reasons why I've always kind of had peace about it is I've known that if if for some reason, you know, my my Christian fiction career in the, in the traditional popular publishing world couldn't work out, I have a career as a cultural commentator. That's how I built my platform. That's the only reason probably why I got a book deal is because I had a decent following of people who cared about me because I was willing to take those hard stances. And I think that, you know, that's an underutilized thing for, for Christian writers particularly. Like there are tons of people who want voices who will say things that are different than the voices they hear all the time. We don't need another, you know, inspirational mommy blogger. <laughs> we need we need something different. We need people saying things that need to be said. And I think if you do that, you will find that you have a platform. And yeah, you know, there'll be some haters and all that, but I don't know. I mean, I I am I have a lot of peace because I built my career being who I really am. And so I never really yes. have to worry about, oh no, what if they find out the real me? <laughs> the real me has been here the whole time. So that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I really like the way you articulated that. I, I feel like Christians get caught between these two horns, both, both of which are faulty. One is 
you know, okay, I'm going to continue to pursue my ambitions exactly the same way I would have if we didn't live in the culture we live in. uh, And I'm just going to be very agreeable and quiet and like borderline in the closet as a Christian. And then the other horn is, okay, it's, you know, it's hard now. There's lots of anti-Christian bias. And so I'm just going to go work in a factory. Right. (laughs) Right. Like I I read finally the Benedict option recently and uh, Rod Dreher repeatedly uses as, as the epitomization of what's now unavailable to Christians, uh, having a successful career at a mid-sized to large law firm. And then he'll say, and instead of doing this, you should like go work in a factory. And it's like, you know, Rod, actually, the law firm world is not quite as far along as you think. And like, yes, I do navigate it differently because I'm a Christian and we live in the culture that we live in. But what I did is I just said to law firms that were interviewing me, I write publicly about controversial things. You should go look at my writing and read some of it before you extend me an offer. Um, So that exactly as you said, so that I wasn't, you know, building a foundation on sand. Uh, You should still, I, it's, there's an appropriate middle ground here where you should still pursue your ambitions and pursue them to the glory of God and pursue them in a way that just takes account of the reality that we're in. Yep. Yep. I would say, you know, if if you love something, you know, whether it's the law, whether it's writing, whether it's something, you know, and you're going to invest a significant amount of your creativity and your time, do you want to do it? with a disguise on, because that's kind of what, you know, you're, you're tempted to do, but really, is that what you want? Like, you know, and I think if you really just consider it, like the whole point of writing is, you know, I, I want to write what I want to write and I want people to care about my voice, not a fake voice that, you know, I created to reach, to, to avoid, you know, any kind of criticism from, from everybody, like, you know, like that, even the idea that you can avoid criticism from literally everyone at all times, like, it's just what a recipe for discontentment and fear. And, you know, like to me, I mean, I'm, I'm just so grateful that God really did kind of like shake me out of that people pleasing, go along to get along attitude. Um, you know, it, it hasn't always been easy, but it, I can see how he's used that one decision in so many different incredible ways. So you mentioned being uh, also a cultural commentator. And one thing that's interesting about your writing career is obviously you're a romance novelist, you're writing for an audience of women, but the audience of your cultural commentary is a good mix of men and women. Like there, there are, there are Christian female commentators that, you know, probably you and I would both like and generally agree with that they're they're just talking to an audience of women. Right. Um, and thus far, you I mean, you haven't done that. I see lots of you know men who read and engage with your stuff. Uh, and in your cultural commentary, one thing that you do is you're a defender of the value of the genre of romance as a romance novelist. And I've seen I've certainly seen at least a couple of times men who have read your cultural commentary say you kind of changed their minds and showed them the the value of the genre of romance, the moral value of the genre. So one of one part of your defense of romance, and I think this will be a good deep question to end on, is that it teaches us certain things about our innate nature. So here here's a challenge that I'd like your thoughts on. I was just thinking about this. So the question that I have is the preferences that we believe we have aren't always the preferences we actually have. 
there's, you know, multiple studies, for example, the most recent was Ghoul, G-U-L, 2018, that show feminist women are more attracted to so-called benevolently sexist men, rather even feminist women are, even, even though they generally disapprove of those same men in this research, except when they're assessing them as romantic partners, they find them more attractive. So, and you know, there are other example of this as, uh, examples of this as well, where people have one preference that's expressed, and then that's not actually the preference borne out by their behavior. So let's say, and I think this poses a question for this, this argument about the genre of romance and its value. Let's say there's a man who reads some of your cultural writing on this, and he's considering trying to embody more of the qualities that you say are found in romance novels. Maybe he's trying to improve his relationship with his wife. How does he know that these romance novel qualities are in the realm of things that women actually do want and not in the realm of things that women only believe they want? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. Well, there's a couple different little, you know, qualifiers we could say. Obviously, who wrote it will be important. I think mine, I think I I think I accurately represent what most women want. Of course, there's always some weird outliers out there too. But <clears throat> why I think you could be fairly confident that what you're getting in the average romance novel is an accurate representation of what most women are drawn to is because women love romance novels. <laughs> and there's the recipe for a male hero that, you know, women almost unanimously all agree is a, a hero that they admire is just a combination of two things. And that is on the one, on like the physical side or the the external factors is that he would appear to be strong, um, healthy, protective, um, you know, able to fight, able to survive. If we want to get down to like a very biological level, it's that, you know, he looks like he's going to survive and he's going to make sure you survive too. Like, And of course that probably translates to most of us is, you know, he's athletic, um, in, in modern terms, too, it usually includes some kind of status. The heroes in romance novels all have done, as far as their careers go, they can have any kind of career. They just need to be sort of like impressive. Whatever Whatever's impressive in that field is what, what they should be. That's what most women are going to find attractive. You can't really write a romance novel about a like a guy who's like, just sort of like, eh, I don't care. I just like, <laughs> you know, like if he's like not ambitious, that's not going to work at all. Um and then the other component. So that, I mean, yeah, that's just true. I mean, you will have women, of course, be like, oh, well, I like I like guys who have a dad bod or whatever. And you're like, okay. <laughs> but that's sort of- Sure you do. Yeah, sure you do. <laughs> you're so quirky. You're so cute and quirky. Um, but then what you always have to do in romance is couple that reality, you know, fit, successful. Just boil it down to those two things with- good character. And so he should be endearing to the the reader um because of the kind things he does, the kind thing kind things he does for other people. Um and you know, in fiction you have a lot of different opportunities to portray it. It can be that, you know, there's maybe there's usually the 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 go-to way to demonstrate it is there's someone weaker and more vulnerable than him. And he does something 
kind to help them. And that's like a consistent thing you see in that character. That's typically, um, you know, the recipe for the male hero in any romance novel. And, you know, I think if you ask most women, like, do you like physically fit, successful men who are kind? (laughs) They're going to say yes. And romance novels will probably, I mean, that's not really going to be surprising to you, but what you'll find in a romance novel is lots of maybe unexpected ways that you see that kindness portrayed. And then, of course, like you can always get romance tips as far as, you know, banter and dialogue or dates or things like that. So I think that is a a practical application of the romance novel for men, for sure. The other thing I was thinking about is it has to reflect like real behavioral preferences because so many women that read romance novels spend so much time reading them. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I think so. Well, and, you know, I think it's I've always argued that one of the value, the value, especially in like postmodern cringe world <laughs> is, is that recognition of real beauty, real femininity, real masculinity, um, real power dynamics. Like it's just romance novels are like slapping you across the face with like reality that many people are trying to um, distort at the moment. And yeah, women, women love to read them because I mean, it gets right back down to you have typically a beautiful, virtuous woman and a beautiful, virtuous man. And obviously that looks different in every story, but really those are the components that every story is working with. And like, it's an ideal. It's speaking, you know, I think our hearts kind of long for that ideal world. And the romance novel is a little gateway into it, a little escape. And that's why they're popular. Amen. Well said. An excellent note to end on. Carmen, always fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this interview. Yes. Thank you, Ian. Always fun. Fun to be interviewed. That's, you know, doesn't always happen. It's I'm usually interviewing. So thanks for letting me chat about my 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 books. I appreciate it. You can pre-order Pretty Little Pieces now. It's available everywhere. It will ship to you on December 4th. And you can order it for $10, which includes shipping once again from Baker Bookhouse, the largest independent Christian bookstore in the country. Thanks again, Carmen, and we'll see you all soon. Thanks, Ian.